BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hi there, I'm Lauren McGoodwin, founder and CEO of Career Contessa, and you're listening to Season 4 of The Females, a podcast that deep dives into the world of women, work, and what it takes to build a successful and fulfilling career on your terms. This season, we're exploring the theme of courage, from the traditional definition to the new and unexpected ways that courage shows up in our own lives. Today's interview is with Jessica Knoll, the best-selling author of Luckiest Girl Alive, along with other books, and the courageous woman who announced to the world, I want to be rich and I'm not sorry, via an opinion piece in the New York Times. Jessica sits down with me to share why she thinks it's hard for women to share their ambition to be rich, why there are conflicting messages around women and money, along with how can we combat them. And of course, we'll be covering whether or not Jessica does indeed consider herself to be rich now. Stay tuned towards the end of each episode where Kayleen and I will be sharing our highs and lows, favorite things, work stories, and much, much more. And now, this is The Females. Well, welcome to the show, Jessica. Thanks for having me. So let's have you briefly describe your career path and how you became a New York Times bestselling author, because I'm sure it did not happen overnight. It sometimes feels like it did happen (laughs) Yeah, your story is a little like that. (laughs) Well, I started my career in magazines. I say that, though, I did have like a brief about eight-month period just out of college where I was working at a talent agency as an assistant. And that did come into play later with my book. So I do want to mention that. But I just wanted to get to New York. And I was in this job. And I knew it wasn't quite right for me. I wanted to be a writer. I wanted to be paid to be a writer. And I discovered the world of media once I got to New York. So I started applying for magazine jobs. And I ended up at Cosmopolitan Magazine as an editorial assistant. And I really cut my teeth there. I was there for about five years writing constantly. I was surrounded by editors who had careers as novelists. And so I got to ask them how they did it and just kind of soak soak up their experience and their journey. And I moved over to Self Magazine around the time that I had started on my first book. And I sold that book and continued to work for about another 10 months at Self. And about five months before that book, Luckiest Girl Alive, came out, I decided to quit my job in magazines. I wanted to be a free agent to promote the book, not feel tied down to one brand. And I figured if it didn't work out, I could always go back to magazines, but I would never get this time back. So I took those five months before the book came out to just 
throw myself into working every single connection I'd made since I'd been in New York and yeah. trying to make sure that my book launched, you know, with as much visibility as I could possibly garner. That's cr- it's so smart. You know, some people I think want to write a book and don't think about all those steps mm-hmm. and you were very methodical about it. I also, I think I read somewhere that when you were writing your book and picking a topic, you also picked a topic that you knew would sell or that people were really interested in. Well, I think what happened was I knew I wanted to write something of my own, whether that was, and I knew this from a, a young age, I wanted to be the creator of something, whether that was a screenplay or a novel. I didn't quite know how I would make that happen. And once I got into magazines and I saw that there was a, you know, a a kind of robust book publishing world in New York, and I knew lots of people who were published authors, I saw that as a trajectory for myself. And I just didn't know what kind of book I wanted to write. And because I was at Cosmopolitan and writing a lot about love and sex, you know, there were editors who had written kind of like relationship guide books. And that was mentioned to me as something that I could do. I could easily get a book deal doing something like that. It probably wouldn't have been like the best or, you know, the highest paying book deal. But that didn't appeal to me. Or even writing like a fiction story that was, you know, in the romance category, that wasn't something that necessarily appealed to me. So I think I was waiting to discover what my voice was, what the story was I was going to tell. And that happened, you know, there were more than one thing happened to inform that. Right. But the one I kind of pinpoint is when I read Gillian Flynn's second book, Dark Places. It came to me as a early advanced copy as an editor at Cosmo. And I was getting, I was preparing to do a fiction roundup. And so I was looking for summer titles to include in that roundup. And that book landed on my desk. It sounded very intriguing. I took it home. I devoured it in a weekend. And that, you know, kind of woke up something in me where I was like, hmm, like, like, this is like, I have that kind of darkness in me. (laughs) Like, I could, I would kind of want to explore writing something in this vein. Right. Well, it paid off. (laughs) Your debut novel, Luckiest Girl Alive, spent four months on… Seven months. Oh, seven months (laughs) on New York Times bestseller. And you've sold over a million copies, which is like… I've just recently found that out. I hit the million million copy That is so cool. It's just cool that you get to go around being like, yeah, I've sold a million copies of my book. wild. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Wild is definitely the best way to describe it. And it was also optioned by Lionsgate with Reese Witherspoon signed on to produce. So… I mean, these are all wild, amazing, crazy things. But since we're here to talk about (laughs) getting rich, I'll talk less about Reese Witherspoon and more about how did success and the money of your first novel really change your life, maybe good and bad? And um, what are some of the luxuries your success has afforded you? I I mean, it was the advance I got for my first book was a large number. And it felt, I mean, I kind of walked around a little stunned for about a week. Once it's all kind of meted out, I mean, there are, it's a payment schedule. You're, you know, you're paid a chunk of it upon delivery of the, you know, first manuscript, another chunk when you deliver first edits, another chunk when it publishes. So it's not one, you know, big lump sum delivered at your door in like one of those huge checks (laughs) like you see on TV. So that sobers you up a little bit, you know, like it's… It's it's yours, but it's not all of yours It's not all of yours and a lot of taxes come (laughs) out, which is so painful. But so I wouldn't say that anything very immediately 
changed in my life. It wasn't like all of a sudden, like I could buy an apartment and, you know, restock my wardrobe. Like it wasn't that kind of like overnight. (laughs) So the movies are not showing the right story. (laughs) No, no, it was not this overnight rags to riches uh, story. So, but what it did is with that first kind of larger lump sum that came into my life, it gave me options. I think it's probably the best way to describe it. It gave me the option to say, I can leave my job and do what I want to do, which is promote the hell out of this book. And I want to do it as a free agent. I was scared about doing it as an editor at one magazine. I was scared that other magazines wouldn't want to promote the book because it could be a conflict of interest. It also, there was you know, there was kind of a weirdness at work about it. I felt like I kind of had to hide Mm. and minimize. And I was like, this is just not the time in my life that I want to be quiet about things. Like I need to be out there and be really, really loud about this. So I needed to get away from that. So it gave me the option to leave that job and to throw myself into the marketing of the book. So that was probably the biggest thing. And that did make a huge, a huge difference in the end. And then that the book, was such a great success that I didn't have to go back to magazines after that. And I could focus on novel writing and then screenwriting as, you know, my full-time endeavors. That's amazing. And any, did you have any splurges? Like I've had splurges over the years. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah, How many years was this? Like, so I got my book deal in 2014. Okay. So five years ago now. And so, yeah, in five years, like, you know, there, you know, I'm now making royalty checks on Luckiest Girl. I got a great book deal with Simon & Schuster for my next two books because Luckiest Girl was, you know, such a success. You know, all my all my two novels that are out now, they've both been optioned and I've been the one to adapt them. So you get wow. that, you know, the optioning money, you get the money to to actually write the thing. On my second book, I'm a producer, so I now get the producer's fees as well. So, you know, there have been there have been things in between that, you know, these kind of paychecks in between just the, you know, book advances right. that have made a huge difference. And yeah, I mean, I think one of the, maybe something that's just really fun is like I can buy myself jewelry. And I, want, <laughs> I mean, not like at once a week I'm buying myself fine jewelry, but like every now and then, you know, like it's pretty cool as a woman, I think, to buy yourself jewelry. I think those are the moments where I feel just really fortunate and really excited that I can treat myself like that. Right. So – yeah, that's probably my one of my favorite splurges. Well, I also read that in uh, an article you did that one of your other splurges is like really great therapy and that you bought yes. a house. And it's just yeah. like, you know, like those are, I mean, those are luxuries, you mm-hmm. know, like I think that's Unfor- really cool. Unfortunately, that, that yeah. therapy has to be such a luxury because I needed it for a long time and I couldn't afford it. Right. So that is one of the things I'm most grateful for that I can afford to take care of myself in that way. Yeah. I'm sure some people listening to this are thinking, wow, this is like really personal questions you're asking. But you have actually been, and especially asking you about your money, but you've been really unapologetic about your ambition to make piles of money. Like literally, you wrote an an opinion piece in the New York Times called I Want to Be Rich and I'm Not Sorry. Tell us about this and why have you decided to be public? sharing that, which I think is super brave. Yeah. I wrote that essay right before my second novel came out in, I guess, so 2018. It's called The Favorite Sister. And it's about a group of women who are highly accomplished, highly ambitious individuals. So, you know, I was thinking, what is the thing I want to write about them? And 
I wrote, you know, there'd been a lot uh, in the air about women and ambition and and people were using that phrase, you know, ambition isn't a dirty word. Right. And I was always like, I never thought ambition is a dirty word. Money is a, dir- a dirty word. Rich yeah. is a dirty word. Like, can we put, take this one step for Like, what are we really saying? When yeah. We, what are we really talking about when we say ambition? Like, right. let's like really be honest. Right. So the word rich kind of popped into my head as like, this is the kind of provocative kind of like root of this word, ambition. So, and I think also I felt very alone in my ambition, in these desires to do well for myself financially and kind of create my own wealth. I felt I didn't know any women who felt like that. And the narratives I knew were kind of they were they were like in two camps. So the one camp was the women I knew who were, you know, having kids, weren't really that crazy about their jobs or like had been thwarted in their careers in various ways the way, you know, the system is set up to like not really allow women to thrive in corporate America once you have children, you know. So you're kind of met with that resistance and I get it. Like I get if like having children in a family is a priority for you, like if you come back to your career and no one really wants to see you thrive. Like, why would you yeah. kind of be like, yeah, I'm just going to give up. Like, I I can understand. I see how that happens. And it's so unfortunate. So it was like, I went, knew women like that. And then I knew women in the magazine world, writers and creative types who were incredibly ambitious and like zero focus, like this laser focus on their careers and not really that interested in like getting married and families and all these things that they felt would slow them down, but they weren't making any money. Like that was the biggest thing during my time in magazines that I learned is you can do really, really well and you can be the editor-in-chief's teacher's pet, which like I worked really hard to be and they give you all this responsibility and you're, you know, you have 10 bylines in each issue. But that level of work and effort isn't reflected in your pay, right. you know? So there was – I was like, wait, I don't want to be just, like, spinning my wheels here and just working and working and grinding myself out. And, like, I'm not – there isn't – I'm working in an industry where they don't have the, like, the money's going, you know? Like, yeah. no one is making what they used to make. So I – tried to figure out like how I could marry my creative instincts with this kind of savvier ambition to create my own wealth. Mm-hmm. And from that came, hey, I want to be rich. Like I've never heard a woman say that. I feel like I'm all alone. And the greatest thing about writing these opinion pieces, and I've had this experience twice with two essays I wrote where I've written something where I felt really, really alone. And the world responded in kind, you know, and right. and I heard from so many women who were like, yes, I feel this exact same way. So I think it's really important to contribute and diversify the narrative out there that we have for women about, right. you know, what they can do with their lives, because that was one that just, to me, I didn't see reflected in our, in our media scape. Yeah. And it's great to know that when you wrote that essay that people responded being like, I feel the same way mm-hmm. because- you could I'm I'm sure you got some negative feedback where some people were like, no, don't do that. The only reason I really knew that I was getting negative feedback is 
is the people that were giving me positive feedback who were saying, like, don't listen to the haters. And I'm like, there are haters? I don't know. <laughs> like, I just try not to – it doesn't do you any favors yeah. to read the comments. Like, normally, if with something like that, like, I'll allow myself to read, like, the first 10 comments just to get, like, a general sense of what the response was. And there were some people who weren't on board, and there were some people who were really on board. And I was just happy to see that there were some people who were really on board. And then I left it at that. And any of the response I received since then has only been people coming to me to tell me how much they loved it. Right. Since we're talking about money today, I have a question for you. How are your finances doing? If you're like most people, that's a pretty uncomfortable question. Enter Financial Gym. Financial Gym is a personal financial services company that takes a fitness-inspired approach to their clients' finances by working one-on-one with a certified financial trainer. Financial Gym helps clients to make smarter money decisions that can lead to long-term success. What I love about the Financial Gym is that they don't give general advice. Whether I'm looking for career advice or financial advice, I like it to fit me specifically. By working with your financial coach, you get personalized advice that is tailored to your specific needs. Whether you need help with budgeting, saving your money, investing, or debt repayment, your financial coach has you covered. After meeting your coach, whether virtually or in person, you will work together on a customized plan to get well on the road to financial success. All the plans include a one-hour goal-setting meeting with your trainer, meetings to review your financial plan, quarterly check-ins with your trainer, ongoing access to your trainer as questions or challenges arise, and you get access to the Financial Gym's online spend tracking portal. To get started, schedule a free 20-minute consultation call over at thefinancialgym.com backslash thefemales. On your call, a Financial Gym team member will pair you with your very own certified financial trainer. Oh, and one more thing. Make sure to mention the Females podcast to get 20% off your new monthly gym membership. Use the financial gym to give your finances the workout they need. This is a good segue into my next question, which is why do you think it's hard for women to share their ambition to be rich or their desire to be rich? Like, is it because the society is just not set up to talk about that? Or do you think that, I mean, there's also kind of that saying of like, you know, money can't buy you happiness. It's not everything. So sometimes I do think people feel almost like, you're not supposed to want that either because mm-hmm. that makes you shallow. <laughs> yeah, I think – so I – if I'm thinking back on myself in my younger years when I was just out of college, I didn't even have the word – like I knew I was ambitious and I had like this very vague kind of sense of what I wanted my life to look like, what I wanted my career to look like, but it was vague. Like that – it was like un undefined mm-hmm. and – those words, like, I want to make money, I want to be rich, like, those words never would have occurred to me. And I think for exactly the reasons you just cited, which is, like, we, you know, there is, like, a dirtiness to talking about money. So I didn't have access to those very, like, clear, clearly defined goals. And only as I've gotten older and more confident have I been able to you know, really define what it is I want for my life. And I think that I do think it's hard for women to define what they want. And a lot of that is because like it's the onus is not on women. Like the onus is on society. Like society is is not set up for women to make money. Like it's just not. Like it's that's why like the, you know, the top, you know, 
people in top management, people who are uh, who control most of the wealth in this country, they're not women. And if they are, it's mostly inherited wealth, you know? So why would you like want to put yourself out there and say like I want all these things that like our culture doesn't even really make accessible to me yeah I never thought of it like that but it's true it's like it's like why embarrass yourself by saying it exactly exactly (laughs) you're not gonna get embarrassing right yeah and uh certainly we're you know certainly set up to kind of feel that way too and I want to read one of my favorite paragraphs from your article which is The conflicting messages of millennial womanhood, to be ambitious but never bossy, strong but skinny, honest but polite, supportive of my fellow sister's success while the culture gets off on girls' fights. Only in fiction have I been able to create women who aggressively seek money and power the way men seek money and power. I completely agree with this. Um, someone should, we should just turn that into like a something framed on the wall. But what are some power moves that women can make to help combat these conflicting messages we've received? Like, I, I think we absolutely are. But now, like, what's the power move that we can make? Ugh, it's so hard. Like, I feel like, so if, like, I'm going to give advice to women, like, I just feel I need to preface it by saying, like, you shouldn't have to do anything. Right. Like the onus shouldn't be on you. Like I think for a long time. You hear that a lot. Yeah, you know, and we, we're always being given advice, like negotiate more. And I think this idea that, you know, men negotiate and women negotiate, don't negotiate, I think it's recently been debunked actually. I think new yeah. data has shown that like women ask for raises just as often as men do. They just don't receive right. them. Right, no, that's absolutely true. So yeah, and even like when I would, like at my kind of like peak magazine time, it was like the lean in Sheryl Sandberg. yeah kind of way of thinking. And I was all into that. Like, yeah, lean in. Like, you know, when you're thinking about having kids, like don't lean away from your career. And you're like, wait. And even Sheryl Sandberg has like recanted it since then. Like it's not women doing this to themselves, right? you know? So if I'm going to like give advice about a power move, like I just want to preface it by saying like there are a lot of things working against women in their ambition. 100%. So that sucks. And right. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, and there, you're, I think this is smart because there are a lot of people who will then respond to this being like, why do women always have to do this? Right. Like, why is it why always do we have to do the work? Yeah. yeah. We, I interviewed someone uh, on season two for the podcast, Caroline Turner, and I asked her that question. And she was like, well, that's a choice. It's a choice to say, I, it shouldn't be on me. So therefore, I won't do it. And, yeah. you know, and I, I see, I mean, I see all sides of this and it, it's not great no matter how we twist it. But, I think some advice is better than no advice. Yeah, uh, and definitely agreed. And I think for me, like the power move is don't listen to people who or don't not even don't listen because you're going to have to hear it. Don't believe people who tell you you can't do it because you're going to hear that from yeah. people. Um, so just be prepared for that and don't believe it. For me, that – and that will manifest differently for you depending on what your career is. For me, as an author, when my book was, you know, optioned by Lionsgate and there the whole adaptation process was happening, that for me looked like studio execs saying I couldn't be the one to adapt it myself because I'd never written a screenplay before. So um, they wanted a seasoned screenwriter to be the one to do it, or they wanted to pair me with a seasoned screenwriter because they didn't trust that I had the skill set to do that. And I, there was just something like just resolute in me that was like, that doesn't make any sense. Like I just don't buy it. I don't buy it. Like I wrote 
a, a New York Times bestselling novel. A novel is five to six times the length of a screenplay. Like, you just can't sit there. and Like, I clearly have a knack for storytelling. Right. A screenplay is just storytelling in, like, a shorter format. Not so. And you it, wanted to do it. And I wanted to do it. It's a shorter format. It's in a three-act structure, which just – you can't even break a novel down into a three-act structure, which that – it makes it this wily beast that's yeah. impossible to tame. So if I could figure that out in a novel – how are you going to tell me I yeah. can't figure that out in a screenplay? It just didn't make sense. And I had a long conversation with my agent about it, who's this like powerful kick-ass woman. And she was the one that pointed out to me like all the male authors who historically have adapted their own works and never received any pushback from the studios. Like they just assume these guys could do it. Dennis Lehane, Stephen King, like all these guys have just, if they want to, they do it. And she was like, I'm not going to let that happen you. So we fought for me to be the one to do it. And I remember when I turned in the script, everyone was like so shocked. Like, it's so good. How did you know how to do that? That's insulting, but thank you. Well, yeah, but I'm like, but I do, that's the thing is like, I think if you have, there's sometimes something at your core where like, you know, your own abilities. Right. And when someone tells you, you can't do that, it does give you pause. Like, wait, well, all these people are so sure I can't do it. Maybe it must be really hard. Let me tell you something. A lot of people who are out there doing things, like unless you are a doctor or a lawyer or like it's like a skill set that you need to go to graduate school yeah. for, like <laughs> a lot of people don't know what the fuck they're doing. They yeah. don't. So yeah. why why not you? Yeah. Yeah. Unless it's the brain surgeon, you want him exactly. to have <laughs> Other than that, I was actually speaking on a panel last night. I said that because it was a panel about like starting your own business. I was like, look, the reality is most of us do not know what we're doing yes. and we're all figuring it out yes. as we go. You know? That has been so freeing for me to understand that a lot of – that I know just as better as that person that I have like elevated in my mind to be this expert yeah. in my field. I'm like, no, no, no. I know just as well, you know? Yeah. And I think that that's the way men operate. I really do. Because like people aren't – don't tell them you can't do it. Like women are constantly hearing you can't do it. So of course like your confidence is like knocked down a little bit. So just, you know. Yeah. Don't let do it anyways. Yeah, yeah. Do it anyway. I also think it's fascinating because I think if like – if a woman is going to take on a project and there's been all these quote unquote experts before, and this is kind of my own speaking from my own experience, like I'll look around and like do as much research as possible. And I wonder sometimes if like, it, I know. Would, it would have been better if I just did it, you know, just did it based off of my gut and my instinct. Yeah. And, but sometimes I start to look around at like, what are other people doing this and that? And you literally get so lost in the weeds that mm-hmm. you, you, you have no idea where you started. And when I was starting Career Contessa, I basically spent – I started at one place. And I spent a year kind of like going all around, you know, doing all these things. Circling. Yeah. I was chasing, you know, shiny objects here and there. And I literally ended up back where I started. Yeah. But I took <laughs> – I took, I wasted a year. So I'm really happy about that. <laughs> okay. And what's your response to someone listening to this and thinking money doesn't buy happiness? I just – anyone who really thinks – I'm like, are you a critical thinker? Like, come on. <laughs> I mean, that's obviously not what I'm not out there promoting money buys happiness. Like that is just, that's not how money works and it's not how happiness works. Right, right. (laughs) I hope that like we have all evolved past thinking like that. It's funny though, because yesterday, oh, I know this is going to air in a couple of months, but (laughs) so recently, so Glamour had this interview with uh, the novelist Daniel Steele and she had this line that was like, it's better to be rich and miserable than poor and miserable. (laughs) 
it's so true. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like if you're miserable and you're not going to like do the work on yourself, um, I'm saying if you're rich and you have the ability to do the work on yourself and you're not going to do it, like you're going to be miserable whether you have, you know, right. even with that money. So yeah, obviously money doesn't buy happiness, but like moneyness or moneyness. <laughs> there you go. We I combined, combined it. A word. I have moneyness. Yeah. <laughs> but money gives you accessibility to a lot of things that are important to our well-being. And that's security. It's protection. Like that's what it's given me. Right. So no, those don't, things don't automatically translate to happiness, but they've made me feel like a healthier and more secure individual. Right. And this is also why when, you know, for people listening to this that are asking for money or going to negotiate their salary or anything related to money, it's why you should not be shamed into feeling bad about this conversation yeah. or that you need to apologize because you're asking for more. I mean, I think the word security is like a word that people don't relate to money very often, but it certainly gives you security. And uh, my mom used to always say, she's like, money can't buy happiness, but it certainly greases the wheels. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, I agree with that. That's something to, to think about. Well, I would definitely say with your book success, you had, I mean, you even kind of said it, an instant rush of success. And many of us are playing more of the long game, Mm -hmm. you know. And so what's your advice for women who want to be rich but are doing it by investing, working their way up at a company, starting their own company, really more of that like long-term picture than, you know, hoping they're going to write a a New York Times bestselling book that turns into a show and all that good stuff. Yeah, I think I think it's really important to just be doing the work, you know? And if you're you're staying the course and you're putting in the work that needs to be done, like I think that that is better than sitting around and thinking I should be doing this or one day I'll get to this. Like yeah. I always tell, I mean a lot of my advice is so specific to uh people who want to write books, aspiring novelists and I think that this piece of advice could actually apply to people in a lot of different industries. But I always say, like, don't wait for the light bulb to go off. Like, don't wait for that light bulb idea to write your novel because it's enough enough writers have spoken about the fact that, like, that just – that's not the way it works. It's not the way it worked for me. Oftentimes, I feel like the light bulb goes off when you're in the middle of it, you know, like you have to do some of the work to get to that eureka moment. So I think my advice is just like stay the course and trust that putting in the work and putting in the effort. And if you're doing that and you're really giving it your whole heart, that that something will give. Yeah. Even if you're in a job you hate, it's Mm -hmm. like it will. I mean, that was my experience. I was in a job I hated, but because I just kept you know, one foot in front of the other. I got this random assignment. It led to figuring out I wanted to be a recruiter, which got me to Hulu, which Mm -hmm. got me here, you know, and it's it's just so fascinating because those dead end jobs even are part of that journey too. Yeah. Well, so I have to ask, because you said that you want to be rich. (laughs) So do you consider yourself rich? If I'm thinking about myself compared to my younger years, when I was living in New York and sometimes I couldn't even afford like a Metro card. So I would walk home, which was a nice walk. It was only two <laughs> miles. I'm not like I walked home in 15 miles of snow. Yeah. So it was a very nice walk. But yeah, like I would make those calculations. Like if you walk home, you know, this whole week, then like you can go to happy hour on, you know, like yeah. those sorts of things I would think about. I don't have to think about those things anymore. So yes, compare like compared to Oprah, am I rich? No. Right. Compared, bad comparison. <laughs> bad comparison. Comparison because who could answer yes to that really? But compared to 22 year old me, yes. Yeah. And also, if we just kind of 
switch out the word rich for ambitious, like you would definitely say that you are ambitious. Like you're, you continue to say, no, 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 I'm going to write the screenplay, not you. And yeah. Give me the shot at it. Yeah. I think that it's important to continue to develop your skill set. And that's something that has become apparent to me as I have taken on the work of adapting my books because I'm learning about TV. I'm learning about movies. I'm learning about producing. And especially with the work I do, like there's only so much writing I can do. There's only so many stories I can actually tell. So to hear that you can be kind of creatively involved in projects as a producer and you can get those fees, but you, you, you know, and maybe they not may not be as great as like the writer's fee or the creator's fee, but like it's still like these, I like to think of them as like kind of the odd jobs, yeah. you know, that you take on throughout the year that don't compete with like the big work, you know, the big picture work, which for me is writing my third yeah. book. Yeah. It's like protecting your energy too. Yeah. Like protecting, you know you need totally. that for the third book. Oh God. I had to learn that lesson the hard way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I feel like everyone has to learn yeah. that lesson the hard way because, you know, God forbid we just give that advice and people listen to it, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. Last question before we move into some rapid fire, which is what's the last courageous act you made and what was the result or impact of it? The last courageous act I made? Well, something I'm trying to be better at doing is carving like there's a lot of people talk about like Mm self-care and when people first started talking about it I rolled my eyes at it because it just sounds like white women bullshit (laughs) (laughs) a little bit but now I've come around to the idea because I don't think of self-care as like taking a bubble bath or like getting a massage like that's not once I started realizing like it looks different than that and that self-care is actually things you can do that like maybe don't feel that great in the moment and for me like I'm an extroverted introvert like I'm a social introvert like I do like to socialize I'm not a shy person but it drains me so I I need to then go back to my home and like kind of take cover for a couple of days and like recharge my batteries yeah because now I work from home, uh, the the kind of urge to to be that home buddy is so strong. Like right. it, it it takes a lot of work for me to get out of my house, and sometimes I think it's not worth the effort because I'm like, what I feel like doing is just staying in my house, and I can do it. So why? Right. There's no one telling you. you there's no be one here. telling me I have mm-hmm. to be here. So why am I gonna make myself do something I don't want to do? So. Some I've really been trying to schedule things to force me out of the house. Yeah. And even when I'm dreading them and I don't want to do them and I go, I feel so much better. Right. And so over the last week, I signed up, you know, the wing opened here in Los Angeles and I've been um, going a couple of times a week and they have various panels and groups that meet. And there was a group, it was kind of like a, uh, like a bit of a support group and I signed up and I was a little nervous about going because I was like, I don't know if I'm going to want to do this. Like I'm going to have to like share some like painful stuff about myself and hear other people's painful stories. And it might just be too much. It might not be too – it might be too heavy. And it was in the morning and I was supposed to be writing and I like had all these reasons to not go. Right. And, and I ended up going and I ended up being vulnerable and I ended up being around other women who were being vulnerable. And I really left feeling like it had been a cathartic experience and I felt very energized yeah. by it. So yeah, so I was I was vulnerable, which felt courageous. And the result was I was energized, yeah. which was, you know, Oh, 100%. (laughs) I I think I would describe myself like that also. And it's interesting because when I first started working from home, 
it was it was getting to the point where it's like when you're brushing your teeth at 1 p.m., you're like, okay, maybe you need to change something, you know, <laughs> because also I am very much energized by being with people, but I'm the same way. I then need to like recharge yeah. by myself. And But I like that story because also it's, it is the story of like sometimes you just have to show up. Even when you don't want to, just show up and then put one foot in front of the other and it will either, you know, be horrible and you'll never do it again or maybe you'll love it, you know, like either way showing up is – pretty much, um, you know, they always give this advice with like exercise or like, if you can just show up, you know, then yeah, you, you won't regret it. Yeah. You, the battle's already been won. Mm-hmm. Okay. So rapid fire. So these are supposed to be fun. <laughs> Some people find them stressful and they're short or one word answers. Okay. The last book you read and would recommend is The Lost Man by Jane Harper. Oh, I've ne- I love all her books. She's oh. a thriller writer and this and some of them are series and this was a standalone and it was excellent. Oh, amazing. I read mostly nonfiction. So actually when I get the recommendation for a fiction book, I'm really excited about it because it's like mostly on the show too. We talk about nonfiction books. Yeah. <laughs> um, what's your guilty pleasure? I don't like the term guilty pleasure because <laughs> I don't think women should feel guilty about doing things that are pleasurable. To them. <laughs> All right. What's your um, thing you do on the side that's not work and not overly socializing, but you like it? Bravo TV shows. I knew you were going to say that. I actually knew you were going to say that. Um, if anyone follows you on Instagram, your yeah. commentary for Bravo shows I, is really good. I'm a Bravo addict. It's funny because um, when I was in college, I used to watch a lot more of those shows and like The Bachelor. But I think partly what was fun about it is there were all these women who would like add their commentary. So yeah. it's actually fun. Like when I see your Instagram, I'm like, this is like, you know, <laughs> it's like the, yeah, it's like the compromise <laughs> of like, I'm not in college anymore. So there aren't people to give me commentary, but now I'm getting it through you. Okay. If slash when money is unlimited, um, you'd spend your time working. I would still work because I love what I do, but I would definitely you know, hope to have like my own charity and be doing a lot more volunteer work. Mm -hmm. I've always wanted to, I think the power of storytelling for sexual assault survivors is a really kind of like underused therapeutic approach. It's what helped me. It's what healed me. So I would love to be doing something in that realm to help other women. That's great. I love that. And looking back, you tell your younger self, Stop worrying about your weight. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't matter. Like, eat you look the donut. <laughs> eat the donut. You look fine. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you, Jessica, for joining us today. Um, please let everyone know where they can find you, especially your Instagram. It's now that I've talked about your Bravo <laughs> commentary, <laughs> your books, everything like that. My Instagram is Jessica Knoll Author, and it's a lot of Bravo videos and <laughs> dog videos. <laughs> English, Perfect. English bulldog videos. And my books are, my first book is Luckiest Girl Alive, and that came out in 2015, and that's the one that I've just sold 1 million copies of. So people seem to like it. Yes. Uh, my most recent is The Favorite Sister. Amazing. And you're working on a third. I'm working on a third book, yes. Great. Well, thank you so much for being vulnerable and sharing and talking about being rich and money, which is <laughs> very abnormal for us. So thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Hey there, it's Lauren and Kayleen back again. Since we loved answering your questions during the summer school season, we wanted to keep the streak going and, of course, in keeping with this season's theme, do something courageous. So here's how it's going to work. Each week, we will individually bring one tough question to answer on air. They're not going to be regular questions. They're going to be sort of these uncomfortable, difficult-to-answer questions around workplace emotions, personal challenges, and unique vulnerabilities. And we'll also be updating you on what's happening behind the scenes for us at Career Contessa and our own lives, etc. 
All right, Kayleen, well, let's start with you. What's what's going on? Um, I've been thinking a lot about uh, this idea of, I mean, I know we work all summer, obviously. <laughs> right, we don't actually um, get a summer break. <laughs> <laughs> but I do every September have this feeling of like, okay, it's back to school. Like, yeah. I'm going to get myself like new school supplies and like um, a lot of books come out in the fall and that's yeah. really an exciting time. So um, just getting back in that back to school month yeah. mode. Um, I know like in editorial, we've been having a lot of fun with like um, back to school supplies. Oh yeah, that's been so fun. <laughs> um, do you remember, remember those Staples commercials from when, I don't know, we were like, I feel like in like second grade, it was the dad like going down the aisle and they had the, it's the most wonderful time of the year. And he's <laughs> yeah. like dancing in the aisle. <laughs> <laughs> Vaguely, but I just I do remember going to Staples and being like, oh, yeah. "This is the mecca." It's like, the best. here we are. Yeah. yeah. So I just like to recreate that, I guess, for myself every year because I'm not a big pumpkin spice latte fan, but I'm <laughs> a huge school supplies fan. So, um, well, it's also I get why this is on. As you said, there's an editorial piece that's coming out. It's about like 35 plus uh, back to school slash back to work items, and I do feel like. It, it does kind of get you in this excited mode to be like, I'm going to get a fresh planner and some yeah. fresh pens. And um, it's funny how we're all sort of wired like that because I do feel like uh, a lot of people's end of August is just kind of like they're just waiting for the mm-hmm. August to end so they can maybe have this fresh new season. Yeah. Um, so I, I totally get that. Back to school, back to work, a little more pep in your step for sure. Yeah. I, think, I think it's just the heat. <laughs> I think everyone's over it's the heat like, now. Yeah. Just go away. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, fall, we're ready for you. We're ready for pumpkin spice, which, you know, means they're going to be having uh, Christmas decorations out pretty soon too. So, um, okay, so new for me in our world, um, probably kind of similar to you. We just wrapped up. We've been working on our new online course, uh, Critical Problem Solving 101. And, you know, these courses that we teach, like, the topic, some of the talk topics are really tangible, like how to update your resume. And I feel like we can give you a template. We can tell you step by step how to do it. But like something like critical problem solving is one of those courses where you have to teach it in a way where it's really digestible because it can be kind of a, it's a, you know, it's like one mm-hmm. of those skills where it, it's, it's not easy to always kind of like wrap your head around. So I'm really happy that we get to start September knowing that that course is in a good place. It's done. It's wrapped. It's it's great. You know, we make sure to always, like, take our time creating these online courses to really make sure that they're actionable but also digestible because I get it. Like, critical problem solving is not one of those things where you're walking around every day being like, I know how to do this. I, I'm a great <laughs> problem solver. So that is something I'm really excited about for Career Contessa is just the expansion of more course topics that are these really tough Um, I I guess like really tough things that you know are really valuable in the workplace and you need them, but like, where do you go to find that? You know, I think especially when it comes to soft skills, they're often things like you understand and like kind of intrinsically know, but it's really nice to, um, put them into practice and go like, oh, I, of course I can do this. Of course I can critically problem solve. Like, it's just like anything else. It's taking kind of your intuition and then applying, um, like a step-by-step process to it. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think 
creating curriculum around that kind of stuff while it's really hard. Like I also really love the challenge Mm -hmm. of it because it's like putting a puzzle together. Um, So yeah, if if you guys um, didn't know, we have online courses. So definitely check those out on Career Contessa. I'm biased, but I think they're all really great. (laughs) (laughs) All right, let's dive into tough questions. Okay, Kayleen, you can go first, I guess. Okay, (laughs) I guess. So my question for you this week is, when is the last time you made a bold or unexpected move? Well, besides starting Career Contessa, which was probably my boldest move, unexpected move. I I think one of the things I'm trying to do more is less of the same thing over and over again. So like, you know, if something isn't working the way you want it, instead of just like doubling down and working harder on that one thing, it's like, you know, taking a radical action. I, I think that's also what I'm writing about a lot with the book Power Moves is how can you make these like really bold, radical, take, you know, make bold moves or take radical action, meaning like do the thing that isn't maybe in your regular programming. Um, so I think, I think for sure that's something that I am just trying to do in general is say like, say no to things that, Mm -hmm. um, are really don't serve me. So like recently I said no to the speaking gig which in hindsight, maybe I should have said yes to because they were going to let, they were, it was basically, uh, it was over in Switzerland and I was going to get to go speak over there. I know. And it would have been awesome to go. I went there a couple of years ago and, and did a speaking gig there and I, I should have gone, but I was like, you know what? This isn't aligned with my priorities. I mm-hmm. have to say no. And so I don't know if it's like my boldest or unexpected move, but I think in the beginning of my career, I would have said yes to everything yeah. and anything. And now my my things are saying no, even when it's like, but you want to go. And it's like, but be smart. Does that really lead to your overall goals or doubling down? So no, I'm not getting a free trip to Switzerland anymore. <laughs> Can I go? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Still I'm open. only semi-bitter about it. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so that's, that's definitely unexpected for me. (laughs) No, but it, it is like, it's, it's tough to say no, especially something like that, which obviously there's like a very thick silver lining there of like, you get to go to Switzerland, but especially when you have so much going on, it's like, you do have to say no to some uncomfortable things. Yeah. And it's okay. I will live, (laughs) you know? Okay. So my question for you is since this, uh, episode was about being rich and it's just, what, what was your gut reaction to the title? I want to be rich and I'm not sorry. (laughs) So I had listened to the raw file a couple weeks ago. And as I was listening to it, I was like, I don't (laughs) like this you know I was like rich is like definitely like Jessica said it's like a super it's a dirty word like it's a really it's a really dirty word right now too especially since there's such a um, disparity between rich and and everyone else yeah I think it was one of those moments where especially like obviously we're no strangers to the fact that women can be each other's biggest critics and I'm sitting there going I don't like this but then I'm like but why don't I like this is it because is a woman talking about being rich and not being sorry? And I'm like, oh, it is. <laughs> so is your it was like all that conditioning, right? Like she talks about that, how like women are conditioned to like yeah. feel bad about that. So it's just uncomfortable. Like I think I would have had the same reaction to a man talking about it, but it's kind of this thing of but men talk about it anyway, or it's more accepted for them to talk about like being so ambitious you know, having it all, blah, 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 blah. But um, I think as I was listening, I was like, you need to kind of like switch up yeah. your um, kind of mental line It's like you thought. had unconscious bias, but totally, you were like totally. recognizing that I have a, an unconscious bias toward yeah. not liking 
this word or especially like having a woman talk about yeah. that, the fact that she's ambitious to be rich, yeah. you know? I mean, I feel like as I maybe get older, more experience with my biases, I guess, I like recognize it as this like icky feeling in my stomach or it's like at first you're thinking you're making me feel icky, but it's like, oh, I'm actually making myself feel icky. Yeah. And I should probably examine that a little so, yeah, it was really interesting for that reason. Yeah. And I'm sure I feel like usually things that go viral like that, like op-ed pieces like that, have that kind of, like, moral conundrum, I guess. So For sure. You either get a lot of people who love it or a lot of people who hate it. It's like if you have a lot in the middle, then it's probably not going to go viral. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, I, I actually – so I first heard about her piece because someone sent it to me and was like, I didn't, I don't like this. And I was like, oh, I know that author. You know, mm-hmm. I know the person who wrote it. And I um, also, you know, she, she, if you read her piece and then you read um, in the New York Times, so, you, you know, if you can read that and then listen to this episode where you get the full context, it's actually, she makes a really good point, like, which is about, and, and of course we covered it in this episode, which is about like, why is it not okay for women to talk about, like, wanting money? Like, mm-hmm. and it's, like, there's no reason other than, like, we're just not used to that, right? Yeah. And uh, we had this woman on in season two, Reshma Sajani, who talks about how, like, girls are raised to be nice, where mm-hmm. boys are raised to, like, take what they want and, like, not be so apologetic. And so it, it's a lot of, like, conditioning and then, of course, you know, recognizing your own unconscious bias so well that's it for tough questions we'll be back next week thank you for listening to this episode of the females you guys can feel free to also dm us on our instagram channel for the podcast which is at the females podcast if you have tough questions you want us to ask but um, we're gonna be doing this all season long and and being courageous and kind of sharing all our vulnerabilities with you But thank you for listening to this episode of The Females. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. We absolutely love hearing from you all. We'll be back next Tuesday with Erin Claire Jones, who's a human design expert. But until then, you can follow us on at the females podcast on Instagram and share this episode with your work wives and listen to this sneak peek of next week's episode. Human design is a system based on your exact time, date, and place of birth. And, you know, at its simplest, it basically gives us our energetic DNA. The idea is that we have a, all have a totally unique energetic blueprint. Human design has two billion different configurations. And so it basically just helps us understand kind of our own manual and how we're really designed to thrive. And so that goes into, you know, how we're designed to make decisions, communicate, work within teams, and so much more. And it draws from a lot of different systems. So it incorporates pieces from astrology, from quantum physics from um, the Kabbalah, the I Ching, the chakra system. It's all kind of like wrapped up into one master system.